0: Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for that special music. I think that's the first time I've heard that piece. Sometime or other, all of us have failed. Our mate, boss, friend, relatives. But what do you do when you fail God or a fellow Christian? Are you a hopeless cause? Is there no use of... Trying again, your faith may be strong, but your flesh is weak. Probably all of us have had that pall of shock and despair over some terrible sin or failure that we've committed even as Christians. We wonder about our calling and whether God will ever be able to again employ us in his work. Among other notables who faced such a dilemma was one, Johannes Marcus. We know him as John Mark. This is going to be a brief study, a life study, in the story of John Mark from our New Testament. It will be the next in my biographical sermon series. I've given a number here over the years, and the title of this sermon is Second Chance. Second chance. First of all, let's go into his early life and his name. His name, Mark. Actually, it is from the Greek Marcos, M-A-R-K-O-S. That is the common Greek form of the Latin Marcus, M-A-R-C-U-S. And served as his other name or kind of like a surname, a last name. It's uncertain just what Mark means. Some suggest shining or polite or large hammer. But his first name was John, as we're going to see in a few minutes, which was derived from a Hebrew name, Ioannis, meaning Yahweh is gracious and points to his Jewish heritage. Names often had meaning in the biblical world. Other examples of Jews bearing Greek or Roman names in addition to their Hebrew names are common in our New Testament. And in some cases indicate Roman citizenship or in others, perhaps a previous life of slavery to a Roman family. And it was the custom of Greek culture Jews, the Hellenistic Jews of that time to adopt a Gentile name for business purposes, as they interacted with a Gentile populace. For example, Paul's other name, his Hebrew name was Saul, as you read clearly in the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 1, we have Joseph, who is also called Justice. And in Acts 4, Joseph, who is called Barnabas. More about Barnabas later. What about Mark's parentage? We don't know much except one thing. We know his mother and we know her name. Let's go to Acts chapter 12 where we're introduced to his mother and it involves the story of Peter. Remember in Acts when Peter was thrown in jail by Herod and Peter was sleeping and an angel stirred him. And said, leave. And Peter thought he was dreaming. And he was shocked as to what was going on. He wasn't sure just what was happening. And he finds himself out in the street, passing right through the guards. The doors are open. And so in Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 11, And when Peter was come to himself, finally wakes up, realizes he's a free man. He said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me out of the hand of Herod from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was John. That's our John Mark. And notice his mother's name was one of the most common names of the first century. Mary. There are so many Marys in our New Testament, it's hard to keep them all straight. But going on in verse 12, his his surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Her home was a sizable dwelling where the church people were meeting, kind of like a house church. And they were praying for Peter that he would survive this ordeal. The house seems to have a large room and a porch, suggesting they were fairly well off. Probably they were among the many zealous Jews of the Hellenistic culture who had been born and raised outside the Holy Land, who moved to Jerusalem to retire there and maybe be there when the Messiah came to Jerusalem the center of their faith and their nation. She was a godly woman, Mark's mother. So when first mentioned, Mark and his mother were already believers. This is about 42 A.D., so about 11 years after the return of Christ to heaven. And being their home was a meeting place for Christians. Mark, no doubt, came to know other church leaders as they came to the fore in that Headquarters Church, James and John and James, the Lord's brother. And it's been suggested, even by some, that Jesus' last Passover supper was held in their home. And that as a young man, Mark, may have witnessed that event in the final events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But some say yes, but in Mark's own gospel, which he wrote the second gospel, he says Jesus had sent his apostles to go and contact the goodman or householder of the house to make the arrangements for that Passover supper. Well, that goodman or householder could have been Mark's father or could have perhaps have been Mark himself. But we don't know for sure. It's just an idea that's been suggested, but it was This family was a prominent Jerusalem family of the early church. And the fact that Peter went to her home, to Mark's home, upon his miraculous release from prison, and knew where to find this praying church in her house, implies that the household had held a position of some prominence among the early Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Nothing is known about his father, but in view of the fact that the house is called Mary's house, one may assume that he was by this time dead or had left. We just don't know. But Mark was also, he had a relative, a very prominent relative who figures in importantly in the book of Acts. And his name was Barnabas that I had mentioned just a minute ago. And we'll look at that verse later. But Barnabas was either an uncle or a a cousin of Mark. And we're told about Barnabas that he was a Levite, a native of the island of Cyprus in the eastern Mediterranean. And he was a landowner. So let's go to Acts chapter 4 and verse 36. Acts chapter 4 and verse 36. But Joseph who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas. There is that example Joseph Joseph's Barnabas. He would often have two names, one Greek, one uh, Hebrew or Jewish. Barnabas, which is being interpreted as the son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus. Perhaps you'll remember a split sermon I gave here some time ago on Barnabas, the son of encouragement. I think it's still online. And he had land, And he sold it, and he brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. This was a relative of Mark and his mother, which could indicate they too had come from Cyprus. Maybe even with Levitical background, we don't know, but we at least know about Barnabas uh, having these uh, connections. They may have been Hellenistic Jews of the Diaspora. The Jews had lived outside the Holy Land, scattered all through the Roman Empire of the first century. So he's a a Jew. He's at this time at least a resident of Jerusalem, but otherwise we don't know much about his earlier life. There's no direct information about his early training. He just suddenly appears in our story. But what a story it is, as we will see. His conversion also was unknown, except for a hint that Peter had something to do with it. Because as we will see later, Peter refers to Mark as my son, a spiritual son. Now let's go to Acts chapter 11, verse 25. The Jerusalem church fell in hard times. A great drought came across the region Because of that, we have famine. And a church now established 300 miles north at Antioch wants to donate supplies, perhaps money, to these people. So in Acts chapter 11 and verse 25, "...then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul." Now, as you read the book of Acts, after Paul was converted... He showed up in Jerusalem and the church was deathly afraid of this Benjamite wolf (laughs) who formerly had been arresting them to bring them back for trial in Jerusalem. But on that road to Damascus, he has this powerful conversion. So when Paul shows up in Jerusalem, they shy away from him. But who sponsors him? Barnabas. And I told that story in my sermon on Barnabas. And so Barnabas, I mean, Paul went back to his home city of Tarsus up in modern-day Turkey in the meantime, but Barnabas knew he needed help. He was serving the Antioch church, and he knew Paul was the man to help him. So Barnabas goes to Tarsus to seek Saul, verse 26. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. It came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church, they taught much people, and their disciples were first called Christians in Antioch you know that? Not Jerusalem, but Antioch. And in those days came prophets from Jerusalem to Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be great drought throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, the brethren up in Antioch determined to send relief to the brethren which dwelt in Judea which also they did, and sent it by the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So they are the ambassadors to bring down this gift from the Antioch church. And now chapter 12, verse 25. Chapter 12, verse 25. Now I disagree, Mr. Simon. The water on the left is tastier. I didn't try yours, though. All right, Acts 11, verse 25. Barnabas and Saul return from Jerusalem. This is called the famine visit. They go back to Antioch when they have fulfilled their ministry, and they take with them from Jerusalem John, whose surname is Mark. Now there's a threesome. John Mark, young John Mark, is now traveling with them, and he goes back to Antioch after this relief mission. And so, chapter 13 now, in verse 1. Let's go on. Now there was in the church, which was at Antioch, certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, it's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, laid hands on them as they sent them away. They were apostles now to go and preach the gospel. So they being sent forth by the Holy Spirit departed into Seleucia. From thence they sailed to Cyprus. They first go to Barnabas' home. But notice verse 5. And when they were at Solomus, which is on Cyprus, they preached the word, to the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, And they had also John to their minister. That's our John Mark. But what does that mean, minister? Well, the Greek word huperites could refer to an official assistant. That's how it was used. And it comes from uh, two words, hupo, which is under, and erites, a rower. It goes back to the Roman galleys when the men down below would row ships across the Mediterranean. The under rowers. That's the actual origin of the word. And uh, this minister, it was very different than a doulos or a slave, but it just was used colloquially of a subordinate official who waits to accomplish the command of a superior. Or he's an inferior minister who performs certain defined functions for Paul and Barnabas. He may have been like a business manager who made the travel arrangements for A party, providing uh, food and lodging, handling requests for interviews with Paul and Barnabas, assisting in baptisms, things like that. Like a ministerial assistant or trainee might do even today. In the first chapter of Luke, Luke uses a related word to it. When Luke says when he was going to write his gospel, he consulted eyewitnesses of the ministry of Jesus... And ministers of the word. And that's a related word, huperities, that he uses there. And he indicates that uh, he, he draws upon some writings of two other ministers. And by that point, that Luke writes his gospel, he may have been also relating or relying on the material provided by the gospel according to Matthew and the gospel according to Mark. So Mark could have been an official who knew, who was literate, who could write, and who could keep great uh, intensive records, correct records. And in the papyri, the word frequently means a person who handles documents and delivers their content to others. So Mark could have been like a recorder of these various journeys to keep notes as to where they went, who they talked to, etc., And it's precisely this type of function, that note-taking for the preaching of Peter, that would have gained him great knowledge of the past, and because Peter was one of the original twelve. Others suggest the word Hiperates was more like a synagogue Kazan. Uh, We read in uh, Luke 4 and verse 20, when Jesus gave his Great sermon there at the synagogue of Nazareth. He was handed the scroll of Isaiah by an attendant, a minister. And then when Jesus unrolled it, he gave his sermon and he rolls it back up and gives it back to this Kazan. Kind of like a overseer uh, for the synagogue. It it may have that uh, responsibility. Others suggest that as a minister, Mark was more of a helper, preaching and teaching Uh, right along with Barnabas and Paul. We don't know exactly, but there are some ideas on how the word was used in that time period. So he was a ministerial trainee or assistant, a teacher or business manager, and of course we know him today as the author of our second gospel. Ancient writers, beginning with Papias, according to Eusebius, in the first half of the second century called Mark the interpreter of Peter. That he was kind of like the interpreter who would translate languages or maybe act as a secretary. And there was a close connection, as we've already seen in Acts, and we're going to see it even stronger a little bit later. Many believe that Mark drew a good deal of his material about when he wrote his gospel from the apostle Peter. But the gospel of Mark is certainly... Uh, not derived simply from Peter's influence. Well, what other details can we glean about this man? Uh, His friendship with Peter certainly was outstanding. Peter was welcomed in this home and would provide much of the information that uh, Mark would need for his gospel. And we're going to see later, Mark may have been of help to Peter when Peter himself begins to write his first and second epistles. This is all going back to the earliest days of the church of God in Jerusalem. So making, this all makes Mark a well-informed author for the second gospel. Probably acting as Peter's secretary, Amenuensis, and his gospel may largely have been written based on Peter's sermons that he heard himself, plus the actual interaction that he had with this apostle of Jesus. Now, let's go to Mark chapter 14. There's an intriguing little story at the end of Mark's Gospel that only appears in his Gospel. Mark 14. Mark 14, verse 50. This is Jesus' arrest. The Roman soldiers and the police force of the temple showed up, And all Jesus' apostles forsook him and fled. Verse 50. But after that, only Mark records this detail. And there followed him a certain young man having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young men laid hold on him, and he left that linen cloth and fled from them naked. This may have been young Mark. Why? Well, the reason is that only this gospel mentions this story. In this incident, which occurred after all the disciples had fled, would have maybe only been known by the person involved. In this case, perhaps young Mark. But why was he there? And what about this garment that he was wearing? In that first century, it was very common... Not to refer to yourself in the first person. John does the same thing when he writes his gospel. He refers to himself as the disciple that wrote these things. They would refer to themselves in the third person. And that's maybe what Mark is doing here about this young man who flees, leaving his garment behind. What a contrast this is to our selfie generation and culture, where so much involves I, me, mine. They had a very different approach to things like that in that time period. And it's been conjectured that Mark may have been in the Garden of Gethsemane during Jesus' arrest because he was caretaker of a family garden that may have been on that hillside. And then at the time of Jesus' arrest, he had been sleeping there. Uh, there is perhaps a watchtower And that would explain his state of being unclothed as he flees. After they grab him, verse 52, he left the linen cloth and fled away naked. It was all done so quickly. And they tried to grab him and he wiggled out and off he went, unclothed. Another idea is that possibly Mark had come to warn Jesus after Judas and soldiers showed up at his mother's home looking for him. And that he rushed off in a hurry, grabbing a linen cloth to warn Jesus about this party on the warpath, so to speak, to arrest him. And some say that that garment that he was wearing was that which was worn by rather wealthy people. So we have this curious little incident here that may indeed have been part of his personal story. But now let's get to his great crisis. Mark's great crisis. In Acts chapter 13 and verse 5. Acts 13. Let's start in verse 5. We were here a few minutes ago. Verse 5. And when they were at Salamis, they were on the island of Cyprus, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John to their minister. Now, verse 13. Now, when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga. They left the island of Cyprus and sailed north to what is today Turkey, to Paphos. And they came to Perga in a district called Pamphylia. And then Mark, I should say Luke, Luke who writes this account, says... John departing from them returned to Jerusalem. Luke does not launch into a tirade to berate Luke uh, Mark for leaving the party. He simply states a fact. Mark leaves. No one can know for sure why he returned to Jerusalem. I've seen up to ten different suggestions. And I'll go through some possibilities here in a minute. But whatever it was, Paul was later to regard Mark's action as desertion. And he holds it against him. What happened? Acts 13, 14, and 15, the hot button issue of the church was how should we receive Gentiles into the church? Do they first have to become Jews? And the men be circumcised before they become Christians? So hot an issue, it leads to the first ministerial conference in Acts 15, where it's finally settled. And it may be that Mark, this is suggested by the historian William Ramsey, was finding it difficult working with Gentiles and having them come into God's church without circumcision. Now this is the way Paul was thinking and what he was actually doing as he preached in these Gentile areas and it may have been bothering Mark. He may just not have been able to handle it. The evidence for this difference in Acts 13, only Mark's Hebrew name of John is used by Dr. Luke. There are hints that Mark's family, like Paul's, were Hebrews of the Hebrews. And so... Luke only uses his Hebrew name. Is that a tip-off, a clue to us that maybe Mark was struggling with this issue at that time? That's one possibility. A second possibility is the prominence that Paul begins to have for the party. Because when that group was first formed, Barnabas had the leadership. Let's go to Acts 15, and I'll show you how Luke begins to show An exchange of names. Chapter 15, verse 12. 15, 12. Then all the multitude kept silence, gave audience to Barnabas and Paul. Notice the order. Barnabas and Paul declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. Then verse 25. It seemed good unto us being assembled with one accord. Verse 25. To send chosen men, To you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Again, still Barnabas is on top. Leadership. But look at verse 22. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Switch. Namely, Judas named Bersabbas and Silas chief men among the brethren. And then verse 35. Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others. In this chapter, Luke is telling us of a transition of leadership from Barnabas to Paul. And so it may be that Mark was having a difficult time. uh, Seeing this transference of power uh, going from his relative Barnabas to Paul. Paul may have been a difficult person to live with, and we just don't know, but this is another possibility. Barnabas uh, is the one who had been in charge, but now it seems to be shifting the other way. There are other ideas. For example, <clears throat> uh, he was young and homesick. That could be. He got seasick. You know, take, taking a Roman ship was not like a cruise. <laughs> journey today on these great luxury liners. It was something else indeed. He could have been afraid. I mean, they're going to dangerous areas. They were meeting sorcerers. They were being threatened at times. He's perhaps a very young man yet. The pace was too hard. I mean, Paul was uh, very Could have been a very demanding person. He just kept surging on, surging on. It may have been Luke, uh, Mark rather, had difficulty making arrangements to, for the party to keep on traveling. We just don't know. Thankfully, we, we can just leave it at that and say he went home. But Paul holds it against him. Let's move on. Five years later. At the beginning of Paul's second journey. So Mark was with them at the beginning of the first evangelistic journey. He leaves. Five years later, Paul decides to have a second evangelistic journey. About five years later. And so we read in Acts 15, verse 36. 15 Some days after, Paul and Barnabas said, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought it not good to take with him, him with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to their work. And the contention was so sharp between them, they departed asunder one from the other. So Barnabas took Mark. And sailed to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren to the grace of God. Whereas there was one team, now there is two. God can work through even problems like this. Barnabas sees something in Mark that was a potential that could be redeemed. He had made a mistake, very likely. But Barnabas had also sponsored Paul at a time when Paul needed help. Barnabas, indeed, was that son of consolation, the son of encouragement. And he sees in his young relative a potential that needed to be worked with. And he determines he's going to take him. And so he takes him as his partner. Dr. Luke now refers to Mark by his Gentile name, Mark. This is in Acts 15 after the conference. And perhaps Mark has finally reconciled himself to Gentiles coming into the church without circumcision. He was willing to go with Paul, but Paul was not willing to have him go with him. And so they split. And now we have two teams. So Mark and Barnabas then leave the account of the book of Acts because Acts then focuses on the ministry of Paul. But that's not. The end of the story. Because we have many more books in our New Testament. Mark matures. And he's found again. Nine to eleven years later. Let's go to Colossians 4. And verse 10. This, as Paul Harvey used to say. Is the rest of the story. Colossians 4. Verse 10. Paul is in prison in Rome for his first imprisonment. He writes four prison epistles. We're going to look at two of them. The two that he mentions, Mark. Let's notice the words he chooses to describe Mark. The one with whom he would not travel on his second journey. Colossians 4, verse 10. He's sitting in jail. Paul says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, salute you. And Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas. The Greek can be either cousin or uncle. Touching whom you receive commandments. If he comes to you, receive him. Paul apparently is sending Mark to the church at Colossae to help represent him. Take care of church matters. Mark is back in the saddle. And he speaks of him this way. Verse 11. And Jesus, which is called justice, which are of the circumcision, these only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, whom you have become, who have been a comfort to me. Notice how Paul speaks of Mark. A fellow worker and a comfort. There's been reconciliation. Paul perhaps realized he overreacted. We don't know all the details, but look how he speaks of him now. Let's go to Philemon. And again, a couple of years ago, I gave this sermon on Philemon. And it was entitled, Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus. When we go to the book of Philemon, look at 22 through 24. There's one chapter, Philemon 22. Again, prison epistle. Paul writes to Philemon, prepare for me a house, a lodging. And apparently this man, Philemon, lived in Colossae. For I trust that through your prayers I shall be given to you. Paul was hoping to be released soon and come and visit the church again in Colossae. Verse 23, there salute you Epiphas, my fellow prisoner. My Sorry, my fellow, yes, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow laborers. They were all laboring for the kingdom of God as a team again. Within a decade or so of the rift over Mark, the relationship between Paul and Mark had been healed. Mark appears to have been chosen by Paul to make some trip to Colossae to represent Paul and to handle church matters. He now is a trusted fellow worker, one who has been a great comfort to Paul during his imprisonment, one in whom he can trust. He's been redeemed. Several years later, Paul is in prison again in Rome. And dies this time, tradition says, by beheading. Around 67 or 68. But before that happens, he writes one more letter. Second Timothy 4, verse 11. Second Timothy 4, verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark. And bring him with you, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Isn't that something? Paul's in Rome. He writes to Timothy, who's possibly at Ephesus at this time. He speaks words of high praise for Mark. And he charges Timothy to take Mark and bring him with you when you come to visit me in Rome. Paul can't wait to see Timothy. He loved Timothy. And he knew his time was short. He says, Mark will be profitable to me for the ministry. What was that ministry? In our Living University course, we suggested that that was to take Paul's epistles that he had compiled and edited to Peter to become part of our New Testament canon. Whether Mark ever made it to Paul before his death, we don't know for sure. But that's still not the end of the story. 1 Peter chapter 5.13. After Paul's death, Mark is working with Peter. Remember their friendship going way back? Now he's a teammate for Peter in the 60s. Late 60s, evidently. And so we read in 1 Peter 5.13. Peter in his first epistle says, The church that's at Babylon... Wow, Mark has really gotten around. Colossae, Ephesus, Rome. Now he's in Babylon. The church that's at Babylon elected together with you salute you, and so does Marcus, my son. Perhaps his spiritual son. Perhaps Peter was the one who had led to Mark's conversion, him and his mother. For all we know, Peter may have baptized Mark, but he calls him my son. Mark is productive in the ministry. This is an amazing story. Peter continues his ministry. He dies shortly thereafter. And Mark and others must have carried on this younger generation. Those who have been trained, who had made a mistake, learned from this mistake, but carried on. We don't know much about Mark's death There are traditions that he became uh, kind of the pastor in Alexandria, Egypt, where there was a large population of Jews. Some say he was martyred there. That's all traditional information. And it's strange that in 815 A.D., Venetian soldiers stole Mark's relics from Alexandria to take up to the church in Venice. Now, that's a traditional story. In fact, just this past week, I printed an article about this very idea. We don't know. That's just traditional stories. But let's get back to his character. Mark showed a willingness and desire not to let past failures keep him from serving his God to the best of his restored ability. He pressed on despite personal spiritual setbacks. He writes our gospel according to Mark, probably between the 40s and 60s A.D. And it's a book of graphic power. And he sees, as I will point out on Wednesday night, he sees to include a good deal of information from Peter. Why is this story part of our New Testament? Well, I think it's obvious to us that personal stories help us identify with these people in the early years of the church. They were flesh and blood human beings just like you and me. And they were moved by whim and passion just as we are. And they made big mistakes just like we do. Their recorded mistakes and failures give us instruction about God's patience and tolerance. And hope gives us hope for the future. Mark's story is a story of forgiveness, reconciliation, redemption, and growth. Although he failed God, he was the young man who recovered himself from defeat and despair, and God was able to use him again. Let's go to Proverbs 24 verse 16. Here's why. Proverbs 24:16, "For a just man falls seven times and rises up again." but the wicked shall fall into mischief. That's Proverb 24, 16. And that's like some Psalms which say a very similar thing. That the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Though he falls, he shall not be utterly cast down. For the Lord upholds him with his hand. When the, his foot slips, God's mercy holds him up. The Lord upholds all those who fall. And who did I say had a great influence on his life? Peter. Go to Luke 22. Luke 22, verse 31. 22-31. The Lord said to Simon, Simon Peter, Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. This is the benefit, one of many benefits of reading the King James, in that it distinguishes you singular and you plural, which we no longer do. We have one word for both. But in verse 30, 31, When Jesus said, Satan has desired to have you, that's plural. That was all 12. But in verse 32, I prayed for thee, that's singular. Jesus prayed specifically for Peter that his faith fail not. And when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. But Peter's faith did fail him. And three times he denied his Lord. And yet, Peter was redeemed. Jesus appeared to him personally and helped recover that man who became the early leader of the church in the book of Acts. Peter knew personal defeat, and he bounced back. And who does he work with later in his ministry? Young Mark, who made a mistake as well, had gone home. Peter was probably the best one to help Mark recover besides Barnabas. Is there someone you need to give a second chance? John Mark gives all of us hope that we can still serve God even after we fail him miserably. It's not how we start that race that matters, but how we finish it even after a second chance.